Okay, so for the last couple of weeks, we've been kind of putting together some guardrails related to this study of the intermediate state. Um, For anybody that might be new, this might be the first time that you've joined us in a while on a Wednesday night. Um, We've embarked on um, a study on heaven and just asking questions about heaven and kind of one by one going through those questions and uh, using God's Word to, as best we can, answer those questions. Um, And as kind of an early part of that study, we've been looking at um, what I'm calling the intermediate heaven or intermediate state. You'll oftentimes hear this referred to. Um, This is the state between uh, now, if you were to pass away, and the resurrection. So just kind of point of reference for for any time I'm talking about that. Um, That's that's kind of the time frame that we're looking at. Um, And in regards to that, the idea being is that we would expect some things to change then after the resurrection. Um, So we're addressing uh, this intermediate state um, kind of ahead of some of the questions that that may have an impact or that may that may differ a bit um, kind of in the long view of heaven. So as a part of that, setting aside some guardrails, we've spent uh, a good deal of time over the last several weeks doing that. I'm, I've kind of, um, as we've been going, kind of been building up this guardrail statement. Um, so I'm going to kick off tonight just by kind of reading through some of the things that we've discussed in kind of as concise a manner as possible um, regarding guardrails as it pertains to this intermediate state, this intermediate heaven, this thing that I'm just labeling it um, this layover period between now and and the resurrection. So, as far as guardrails go, um, kind of hold on to your hats, as Dustin would say that I say. <laughs> this is my first time, but now it's going to be a thing. So hold on to your hats as I, as I kind of go through this guardrail. There's a lot that I'm trying to pack into this statement, so... Um, <laughs> Hold on to your hats. (laughs) So here we go. Jesus did not descend into hell to incur any further punishment. When Jesus said, it is finished, he had finished the full cup of God's wrath upon our sin. Also, Jesus did not go to hell for the purpose of extending an offer of salvation to anyone in hell who died before the incarnation. When we speak of the intermediate state, we are not here intending this to be understood as some type of purgatory. This is also not to be understood as a type of soul sleep or unconscious existence. Finally, Abraham is seen as the premier example of faith. And it is because of his faith that God counted him as righteous, as we read in the Scriptures. Therefore, there is no reason to believe that Old Testament saints were kept out of the presence of God until after the resurrection of Christ. I've added a side note to this. This is just food for thought for you to consider, specifically related to the the thought of Abraham's bosom or by Abraham's side. This is just, again, a side note that I've added here, like, Consider this, what about those that died before Abraham even existed? If we propose that everyone before Jesus went to Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side, then what of Noah? What of Adam and Eve? What of Abel? Right? Where would these individuals have gone? Again, this kind of putting this question out there is, is intended to help serve in this idea that the language around Abraham's bosom is speaking of paradise. It's speaking of heaven. We're going to see a passage of text that we're going to 
kind of hit tonight as we address this next question. We're going to see someone speak about paradise after the resurrection. So that term being kind of used before and after, indicating to us this this is all speaking about the same place. Therefore, we conclude that, along with uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why... It is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. So this yes in Him has been true before He even came because He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. And along with 2 Corinthians 5, 8, where we read, Yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This statement is true of all who have believed the promises of God from the time of Adam to now. God has been, and if you've been in any amount of sermons from any of the preachers here at Mount Carmel, then you will know that, that, that we would stand, this is one of those hills to die on, that God has been making promises literally from the very beginning, right? And that there have been those who have believed those promises from the very beginning, right? Like the proto-evangelium even being like in that, in that moment, the story of the fall, seeing this picture of God making a promise to Eve of the serpent being crushed by someone that would be a seed from her. This, this gospel from the very beginning, this hope, this promise being laid down from the very beginning. And those who believed God, we see time and time and time again throughout the Old Testament that they were considered righteous by Him. Abraham put forward in the book of Romans kind of as that premier example of the type of faith of the one who believes in him. So, uh, to continue this, stu- this, this study um, regarding the intermediate heaven, in this session we'll be discussing the intermediate state. Um, this will kind of be a continuation of this series that we've been doing for the last couple of weeks where we consider questions that pertain to our experiences after death and before the resurrection. So, uh, un- until the point that I say, hey, we're now looking at these questions and, and focusing on them after the resurrection, just consider that we're going to be kind of in this discussion around the intermediate state. And this is from the point that if you were to die today and it and, and you have not been resurrected, uh, then you find yourself in this intermediate state. And we're going to be asking questions regarding that. Uh, so like, what will our life be like, our existence? What will it be like as we, affate, as we all await our final resurrection hope? Um, it's important for us to make the distinction, I think, between the intermediate state and our eternal hope of heaven because there's at least one significant difference between the way that you will exist if you were to pass from this walk of life today and after the resurrection. You will be made like Christ, right? He is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the hope that we look to when we try to paint the picture of what it is that we hope for in eternity. So, question that we're going to be looking at this afternoon, and we're going to look at it in in a couple of passages of text. Um, Is the intermediate heaven a part of this universe? All right. So, is the intermediate heaven a part of this universe? That's the question that we're going to be looking at tonight. We're going to be, if you want to go ahead and be turning to Acts chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verse 55 and 56 here in just a moment. But this is the question that we're going to kind of try to think about tonight. Um, 
this is this is one of those where um, I, I feel like up front, I want to give you a definition of what it is that I mean by universe when I ask this question, right? Uh, so here's kind of a working definition of what I mean by universe, and we could change this along the way, and we may find ourselves um, coming to a different um, conclusion based on the way that you might define what the universe is. For example, if you think that the universe includes only those things that can be observed, um, like scientifically observed, then we might come to a different conclusion than uh, the one that we're going to come to uh, tonight. So I want to kind of start us out with the definition of universe uh, here that we can kind of all be on the same page when we think about it. So the universe here, I intend to say um, that it's the entirety of space, time, matter, and energy, including all celestial bodies, galaxies, stars, planets, and pay attention to this, everything that exists, observed or unobserved, known or unknown, right? So um, things that we might not even know exist yet, um, there are those things that would, in fact, when we discover them, be in the universe that we find ourselves in. So um, why is this an interesting question to ask? Um, I think when we look at Acts chapter 7, um, verse 55, where we see this, any term that I, that I use here, I, I, I reserve the right to withdraw it later and, and change it to a, different, um, to a different term here. But we see what appears to be this overlapping of worlds in this text here. We see this being able to peer into another world. And there's lots of questions that we should ask ourselves when we see this text. I want to set you up with a couple of those as we kind of consider it now. Um, if I see something, and, and you'll oftentimes, if, if you've ever heard me talk about Jesus, the resurrected Christ, and seeing him, what it means to see him, you'll oftentimes hear me go through a similar type spiel whenever I describe that. For me to see you, certain things have to be in place, right? Can you think of some of those things that have to be in place for me to see you? Light has to be there, right? Because in the absence of light, my eyes don't work. My eyes don't send out infrared. That infrared bounces off you and come back to me. I'm not working like a bat where I'm sending out this like frequency that comes back and I can perceive it. My eyes work because light exists. And my eyes are tuned to see a frequency of light. So I see you because you are close enough to me that I can perceive you with these instruments that are on the front of my face. Right? So for me to see you, the light in this room that's coming from the lights above us is bouncing off of you and landing in the back of my eye. There's a lot that we take for granted when we consider that we can see one another, right? That, that, that the ability to perceive your presence comes with me living in this world in which that can exist. 
Now, when we see, and and what we're going to see when we look at Acts chapter 7, is not a vision in the mind, right? There's no no one um, who has written and been a value to the church over the history of the church that puts forward an argument here that would stand that this is some vision simply in the mind, like a dream might be. This is not here Stephen having a dream of a thing. The language does not allow for that. And we're going to see in a couple of other texts similar types of seeing, perceiving, that show this same type of behavior where a world that was before unseen is made visible to someone, right? So that's what we're going to see here. So um, again, just kind of starting with that um, that definition of universe here so that we're all on the same page. I'll, I'll read that, and then we'll go to Acts chapter 7, uh, verses 55 and 56. So the universe refers to the entirety of space, time, matter, and energy, including all celestial bodies, galaxies, stars, planets, and everything that exists, observed or unobserved, known or unknown, Um, To the uh, observant listener, you would say, Landon, you have defined a version of the universe that could almost in no way could you could you then like exclude this from being in the universe. And I would say you pay good attention. Um, Acts chapter seven, verse fifty five. Let's look at this text and let's consider it when we consider what it is that Stephen sees. Again, he's going to be seeing into the intermediate heaven where Christ is standing at the right hand of God. He sees Christ standing with his own eyes, just as those who had seen Christ after the resurrection saw him with their own eyes, but now the ascension has happened at the point in time that we find ourselves here in Acts chapter 7, and something happens, like, like, and I'm going to actually, I'm going to read like one, two, three, four different um, commentators throughout history and what they've had to say about this text. Um, in, in part, um, I looked at so many because when I first looked at it and came up with my conclusions about it, I, I thought to myself, "This kind of sounds, this kind of sounds wacky. How close am I to what other like people that have thought about this? Uh, how how close am I to where they would con- come to their conclusions here as well?" And like to my excitement and surprise, like they they're thinking in the same way, which was a, an encouragement to me. Um, one because it was like you're at least on the right path in the way that you think about this, um, but also kind of coming to the conclusion that um, it is as evident as I thought it was upon first reading, because this is the thing that comes out, like I say, almost universally for anyone who has written about this text and considered what it means. Um, there's there's this there's this kind of unity that, that you find um, kind of across the board here. So, Acts chapter 7, verse 55. But he, speaking about Stephen here, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened 
and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. A couple of thoughts just kind of before we get into this text. Uh, Who is it that must have been recalling this statement for Luke to be pinning it in the book of Acts? Right. If we read this text in its full context, we'll see a man named Saul who was there. Saul, who's later named Paul, who is uh, one of the champions of the of the church after he was one of the ones that was tormenting it uh, most fiercely, um, is the one who's here and and um, sees this thing take place. Hears Stephen's word as he says this. Um, so here we find Stephen having gazed into heaven, seeing the glory of God, and he sees, as he's looking, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And um, so this was not just a thing that he would see only. He spoke this truth out so that those who were persecuting him would hear this reality, that he had been blessed in this moment. He had been, in a sense given sight or perhaps his true sight of what reality looks like was restored in this moment uh, so that he could see clearly. And when he saw clearly, he beheld the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. A couple of things to take away from this. What must it mean for him to have seen with his eyes Jesus standing? Give me some thoughts about this. The light of God was reflect like here's here's like an amazing thing to consider, okay, as we consider this, because there's a couple of ways that like that light could have like found its way into Stephen's eyes. One is this glory that was shining from the Father, reflecting off of the body of Jesus, making its way into Stephen's eyes. That's one. So like the light source being the Father. And if that is the case, then what that what that what we the considerations that we come to in this is that our picture of what that heaven, that intermediate state must be like, this is the conclusion that I come to as I consider these things, is that it is likely more similar to my experiences here than I have considered it to be in the past, right? Because whatever that world has, the nature of it is such that it can pass and be perceived by us. Stephen was a man in this moment. His eyes were opened, or the Scriptures say here that heaven was opened for him so that he could peek inside, and when he looked inside, he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. A couple of things to consider as we consider this. Specifically, like, and we're going to see this when we look at other texts tonight as well. Um, When Jesus was raised, how was he raised? Only a spirit? Was he only a spirit? No. How was he raised? He said, look, flesh and bone. Spirits aren't flesh and bone. You see that I've got it, right? Like he was raised in the flesh. He is the first fruits of the resurrection that we also hope for. He walked with them, talked with them, ate with them, communicated with them. 
over a course of time, and then as he's walking out, what happens? What's the picture that we get in the opening of Acts? That a cloud comes, that he's raised up. Now, does the text there say that he was dematerialized, that he became something other than what he was when he was raised? So he left a body, he will return in body, correct? How is he now? In what state is he now? Okay, I hear spirit, I hear flesh. Okay, what are you? Your flesh and spirit. But oftentimes when we think about what happened after they could not see him anymore, though our minds immediately go to, he must have just like in some way like not become flesh anymore. Because what do we consider? If he was flesh, I would be able to see him or someone would be able to find him or right like that's the way that we oftentimes our minds will work concerning these things. But here's what's interesting is that we get a couple of pictures, this being one of those pictures that after the resurrection, after the ascension, someone sees Jesus in the flesh. Like all the language that's communicated here, the Son of Man standing at the right hand, all of this. What side of the podium am I at? What side? How is it that you can put me in a position next to a podium? My body has a place. It takes up a space. Where am I now? I'm not where I was before. <laughs> Right, So the language of this is of Jesus standing. Well, what do you see that I'm standing on? Feet, legs, I have a body. Like the language that we see here is Him seeing Jesus in the flesh. So this body that Jesus had when He was walking, talking, eating, the conclusion that you would come to is that the same body that he has as he stands at the right hand of the Father, the same body is the body that walked with them. Is the same body that as they were walking and talking about the kingdom and he was ascending, same body. Okay? Same body. So, if that is the case, and I think this is why it's so hard oftentimes for us to consider that, if it is the case that he is still embodied now, then what does that tell us about the intermediate state? This place where he is now. What are some conclusions that we would come to? Would one of those be that it is a place, an actual place? Would it be that... It, that it takes up some sort of space that you could be present at the right or at the left or in the middle, like that you can put position to things in this space. That the world that we are used to and comfortable with interacting with, it appears that there would be similar interaction in that state. Like are those conclusions that could be drawn from this? Now, when I say that, do, I, do you not think, how in the world could that be? How could that be? 
Doesn't that seem strange? Doesn't it seem like then, wouldn't we find Him? Wouldn't it at least be feasible that we would find Him? Is it that He's maybe behind the moon somewhere? Like people come up with all kind of crazy ideas about what, maybe He went off way into deep outer space. Like what's the, like do you not come to this conclusion? Do you not think this, am I the only one that thinks these crazy kind of thoughts that if He is still physically in a body somewhere, then where might that be? And is it close to us? And here's what we see from this is that at least in some way, because here's what, I would, here's what I would promise to every single one of you, is that if I ran 100 yards from here, you would see me less than you see me now. And if I ran 1,000 yards from here, you would see me even less. So for him to see him at all meant that he had drawn close to heaven in that moment. Right? With his own eyes, he was able to perceive Christ in the flesh standing at the right hand. What a crazy thing to consider that heaven might be that close. That it might be that close. It blows my mind to think about. And, and I rack my brain again and again and again trying to figure out how it could be that a man in space and time might find himself gazing into heaven and with his very own eyes see. Not a vision that was in his mind, but see with his own eyes Jesus. In the flesh. This is what Scripture says happened here. Now I'm going to give you a couple of uh, different people who have thought and considered about this text and some of the conclusions that they have drawn here. Um, Wayne Grudem is going to be the first one. Uh, He addresses this in the Systematic Theology uh, text. And here's what he says concerning, uh, concerning this. He's saying that Stephen did not see mere symbols of a state of existence. It was rather that his eyes were opened to see a spiritual dimension of reality which God has hidden from us in this present age, a dimension which nonetheless really does exist in our space-time universe and within which Jesus now lives in his physical resurrected body, waiting even now for a time when he will return to earth. Matthew Henry, uh, in his commentary regarding this text, says, Jesus, being the Son of Man, having having taken our nature with him to heaven and being there clothed with a body, might be seen with bodily eyes. And so Stephen saw him. Again, as we consider this thought it starts painting a picture of things that we ought to think about this heaven that we will find ourselves in when we pass from this life and await the resurrection right like what might that heaven look like will it have bodies in it is one question that comes to mind and the clear answer from 
the text is at least one, at least one. Jesus is there now. And that leads me to other questions. Uh, we'll save those probably for an, another time, but um, I imagine that, that you would probably come to, to similar uh, questions when you consider that Jesus has a body there. What does that mean about the spirits that find themselves there? Because again, like if I pass from this, where are you going to put my body? Are you going to put it in the ground somewhere here? Or you're going to incinerate it and put it in a little shrine and put it somewhere, right? Like maybe scatter those ashes, but you'll find that my body is here, but I am not, right? Each and every one of you that is here tonight will find yourselves at some point in the future where your spirit is separated from the body that you have here that is growing old and deteriorating, and you will find yourself in the presence of God what will that look like? We know that we'll be awaiting the resurrection. But one question that comes to my mind is, how will He see me? What does Spirit look like? Am I the only one that's ever thought about that? What does Spirit look like? Because here's the thing. Every picture of Spirit that you paint in your mind looks something like a ghost that you can perceive with your eyes. And again, if you can perceive it with your eyes, what is happening? Light is bouncing off of whatever that thing is and landing in the back of your eyeballs, right? So like any picture of spirit that we draw has some type of physical nature to it. We can't think of a way that you would see a spirit and it not be physical even, right? Because think about it. You don't see it, but what do you... Like you think about a ghost moving something. What did it have to do to interact with the physical reality? Right? So like when I think about this intermediate heaven and I see these pic this picture of Jesus in his flesh there, these are questions that come to my mind when I consider it. Um, so others that have thought about this, John Gill writes regarding this passage, Jesus being risen from the dead and ascended on high was set at the right hand of God in human nature and so was visible to the eye of Stephen, whose visual faculty was so extraordinarily enlarged and assisted as to reach the body of Christ in the third heavens. John Calvin, writing about this passage, says, How is it, and this this is a really old writer here, so I'm, I may have to translate some of his not-so-clear English. Um, I'll try to preserve it as much as possible. Um, how is it that the heavens were opened, he asked. For my own part, I think that there was nothing changed in the nature of the heavens, but that Stephen had a new quickness of sight granted him, which pierced through all lets, even unto the invisible glory of the kingdom of heaven. He continues, Therefore he saith that the heavens are open to him in this respect, because nothing keepeth him from beholding the glory of God, whereupon it followeth that the miracle was not wrought in heaven, but in his eyes. Again, like as these writers are considering this, like the nature of heaven, none of them are considering it having been changed, 
but something given or granted to the one who is seeing here. So it's, that's where he, uh, in 55, was talking about him being full of the Holy Spirit. Yes. And pers- if not full of the Holy Spirit, you think you would have been capable of seeing Um I think had he not been full of the Holy Spirit, he probably would not have gotten to this point. <laughs> um, the sermon that he threw down that led to this, like he would have probably hushed, uh, like as soon as he saw that folks were getting a little bit irritated by the Holy Spirit pressed him on into this, and then uh, granted him sight to see what is normally unseen. Okay. Um, so this is a this is kind of the consistent thought through um, Christian writing, not that a a thing changed in heaven, but that for a moment there was either a granting of or a restoring of sight, right? A granting of and a restoring of or a restoring of sight, and I I'm not going to tell you which one that you should consider it to be there. I think either one of those are valid ways to consider it. As I consider it, and as I consider some of the texts that we're going to hit later on, a question comes to my mind. What did Adam see before the fall? How did Adam see before the fall? And was something lost in the fall for us all concerning this sight? And that leads me to this thought, especially as we come to some of these. We're going to look at 2 Kings uh, chapter 2. We're going to see a couple of other occasions where sight is granted to someone to see what is already there, but they could not see it before, right? So this sight is granted for them to see. And I wonder if this could be a restoring of true sight. If we don't find ourselves in some ways, seeing maybe more dimly than we thought we saw, right? Like we know that we find ourselves surrounded by a host of witnesses. We see throughout Scripture that that the angelic world exists alongside of ours. And when it gets described to us, Oftentimes it gets described in ways that are very familiar to us. Like not that they just pop in and out of existence, but that they go to and fro. Even Satan himself goes to and fro. Not omniscient, all-present, not everywhere at all times, but finds himself confined to a place and needs to go to and from. Right? Like this is the type of language that gets... Kind of given towards the angelic world, doesn't it look like you had? Yeah, there's such a fun passage in Second Kings that kind of talks like that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not the same, you know, but it's like the way it words it is, like in Second Kings six. Yeah, we're going. Is it seventeen? We're going to hit that one too. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Well, so we're going. We're going to touch and um, let's see what kind of time we're working with. Um, we may or may not finish tonight. If not, we'll pick this up uh, next week. Uh, we'll we'll see how far we can get. We've got two more passages of text that I want us to look at and consider regarding this like sight and the existence of the hev- of these heavenly 
beings that seem to be present but not visible. And this is the kind of the picture that we see in 2 Kings. I want us to look um, at 2 Kings chapter 2 first. Um, and here when we read this text, consider the parallels with Christ's ascension. Okay? I, I want to put that out there. There are parallels that we will find here that parallel Christ in the early chapters of Acts ascending into heaven. Okay? So 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, and the first part of verse 12. Go ahead if you want to flip there. 2 Kings chapter 2, starting in verse 11. I'm not going to, for the sake of time, I can't re read this entire encounter, but um, we find ourselves here um, in verse 11, and it says, And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. So this is Elijah being taken up into heaven. It speaks nothing of any type of transformation from physical to spiritual existence. It just the same type of picture being painted about him being carried into heaven under different circumstances, but it's the same painting of a picture that we see with Jesus. So we find Jesus taken up, seen no more. Here we find another instance where the prophet Elijah is taken up by a whirlwind into heaven, and the one who is with them, it is said that he saw him no more. So he's taken into heaven, can't see him anymore. Again, when I see this, I ask myself a couple of different questions. The first question that I ask is, when it says heaven here, is it merely talking about it took him into the air, right? Like, did it take him into, like, just into the heavens and he wasn't seen? Or is this actually talking about what we mean when we say that someone went to heaven? Because if it is that second one, then he went to heaven in a body. And this one's an even harder stretch to consider because his body that he went to heaven with is not the same type of body that Jesus went to heaven with. Elijah did not get taken up into heaven with a resurrected body. So it leads me to all kinds of questions that I'm like, Landon, if you say these questions in church, people are going to think, one, either you're dumb or that you're a heretic because some of this stuff just is like, does his body not get old? That's one of them. Like, this, like, he gets taken up. He doesn't have the resurrection body like Jesus. Jesus is the first fruits. This happened before Jesus. So if Jesus is the first fruits, this, this wasn't him being transformed into that. So he has a body like we have. That body found its place in heaven. Is that possible? That's a question that I have when I consider this. If that is the case, then what does that mean of the nature of heaven. Again, we've already come to this conclusion because Jesus' body is there. It's 
This is a question that I come to when I think about this, right? At least one, right? At least one, because Jesus is there in the flesh. So at least one. What of Elijah? Here's what I here's what I feel like safe to assume that the nature of it is as such that it can at least sustain the physical as we know it. That must be true if Elijah was taken there, right? That must be true if Jesus in the flesh is there now, right? Again, consider the similarities here. The, the language is too close to ignore um, and, and, and the way that it parallels um, Jesus' own ascension. Um, now we're going to go to... I've got a question. Yeah. Throw it out there. Wouldn't Elijah, though, have a new body? Because Scripture said we'll have a new body. So in transformed into heaven, wouldn't he have a new body? So the bodies that we hope for, we hope for in the resurrection, right? So, like, I find myself, when I consider this, it makes me think there's something possible, but it's like, is it a stretch too far for me to step there? That's where I don't... That's where I'm like... Can you, can you clarify for us if the resurrection is a... is synonymous with our going to heaven or is it at an actual time, place, event that's going to end up happening at the end of time? Yeah, so the resurrection... Is not, you don't each individually experience a resurrection upon death, right? That's not what happens when you die. You don't find yourself, right? This is a universal hope that we all share for Christ's return in which we will all find ourselves either changed in an instant or raised to new life. There's a moment in the future that we all hope for that is this moment. And in that moment, heaven and earth are united in a way that has not been seen by anyone save Adam and Eve. Right? Like, there's not been the type of unity that we hope for in any of our lifetimes. Right? Um, and in that, again, there's some pictures that get painted there. Uh, these are painted in the book of Revelation, and Revelation is... Prophetic, so um, this, I'm going to say take this with a grain of salt as a result of that. But a city comes down out of heaven to earth at the end. right? New Jerusalem comes down from this place where Jesus is now, where you will go when you die. And then in the resurrection from this place comes a city. What do we know about cities? Right? There's people there. Like, yes. Um, so we're going to, in a future, we're going to get, we're going to spend a considerable amount of like mental energy considering 
the language around new heavens and new earth? This is going to be a question that we're going to like spend specific time on. Um, kind of as a precursor to that, I want, um, I want us to think about that, that there's two possibilities when we think about um, what it means by new, right? Like, n- is it new in the sense of renewed? Is it new in the sense of completely different, right? Now, here's the question. Are you going to be new in the sense of renewed? Or are you going to be new in the sense of completely different? Well, we ask ourselves the question, and we answer that question by looking at Jesus and saying, was Jesus completely new? Was He renewed? Like, they saw Him. There were things about Him that were... There was a continuity between the Jesus before the grave and the Jesus after the grave. Like he, the, Jesus could say after the grave that the one before the grave was Him, right? So in the same way, I think we will come to a conclusion that we will, again, possibly look at the earth, this new earth, and in many respects see that it was a renewal that occurred, Right? In the same way that Jesus' resurrection, there was many things that were absolutely completely different, but there was a continuity between what was before and what was after. And, and if that's the case, right, if that's the case and we consider this language, and again, it's from the book of Revelation, it's a prophetic book. Prophetic books are notoriously difficult when it comes to like getting it right. How do we know this? Look at everyone that lived with Jesus, that knew the Bible, and missed Jesus, right? Like all the scholars that had all the prophecies got it wrong, right? Yes. Uh, God didn't destroy the planet when he brought the flood. He only destroyed the surface. Yeah, yeah. So in, like in that same way, there was, a, there was a catastrophic destruction, a continuity between the world before the flood and after the flood, right? Like there was a lot different, a lot the same, like, I think that same type of pattern we'll find um, in kind of, I, I think the end times and the way that that will occur, we'll find that, that much of it follows that same pattern, right? That like catastrophic language can be used, but, still, but still maintain the continuity between what was and what is, right? Um, when he created the earth and the heavens and everything, everything was good. Yes. You're making the argument for me. This is good. Like this is it. Like this is like that's the that like you're like you're thinking in the right direction, right? Like you're that's absolutely the way that we should be thinking about these things. Like he said, it was good. 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 Right? Um, and he's been working, and I, I think again that's like that makes for that argument of like that like consuming fire being a thing like. If you take a fire and you consume like, and I'm not a I'm not a metallurgist, so my analogies here will will be wrong for anyone who is. Um, but take something impure and put it in the fire to make it pure, right? Like that idea of of making it new, not by completely destroying and starting from scratch, but by putting it in the fire and then drawing it out. And it being different, but the same, right? Um, so we've got Second Kings we just hit. Um, we've got a couple of minutes here. I'm going to put this one out there. 
Um, and then we'll see, we'll see if we can get to a conclusion real quick. So, uh, second Kings chapter, um, six, verse 17, I believe this is probably the verse that Dustin was alluding to earlier. Again, this is where like there is this spiritual reality that is there, present, real, um, but unseen. Um, and then there is sight granted or sight restored, um, here and uh, he's able to see what is all around him. So 2 Kings chapter 6, uh, verse 17. Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. So the question is, were they there before he could see them? Are they there? Yeah, they're there. Yes, I mean, Elijah's like, let him see, Lord. Now that yeah. begs the question, could Elijah somehow see it? Had he somehow been granted sight to see what this other person could not see? And then he prays that he's given sight to see it. It definitely begs that question because Elijah does not seem like he is um, unaware of the presence of these spiritual entities that are literally on the mountains they're with them, right? They are there. He just cannot perceive them. Um, so um, s- some definitely some interesting things to consider, and we're kind of uh, in the conclu- conclusion of this. Um, here's here's some, some thoughts. It seems as though the universe that we inhabit has real entities that coexist alongside of us, which are not norm which we are not normally capable of seeing clearly. It does appear, however, that the capacity can be granted to us to see these things normally unseen. And then here's um, again, take this with a grain of salt. This is literally just when I think about this, this is what what my brain thinks. And I say perhaps it's the case that as a result of the fall, we lost the capacity to experience the full dynamic range of existence, and instead of our senses, uh, and instead we find our senses no longer in tune with the spiritual realities around us. Perhaps it's a momentary regaining of true sight on the part of the seer when Scripture speaks of occasions where angels appear or where heavenly realities can be seen. Um, with that being said, um, kind of a, a final broken analogy for you to think about because it can be hard for us to wrestle with realities that are real but that we can't see them or perceive them. Um, who here has a phone? And again, this is a broken analogy. Do you have a phone? I see a number of them, probably nearly everybody. Um, it's not magic that when you hit call, it calls. There is, you are bathed in a sea of electromagnetic waves that you can't typically perceive. But by way of the advance of technology and people way smarter than us, um, the ability to harness that unseen thing 
that's all around us enables us to have this cool device that we can video call or eat away time on Facebook or <laughs> pick up the phone and you know get in touch with someone around the world, right? So with that broken analogy, you can perceive of things that exist around you that you can't see normally, right? Now, with this, and this is why I say it's a broken analogy, I am in no way trying to place within your mind the idea that there will be some point in the future where humankind devises a technology to weigh out the spiritual. Okay? That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is that it is quite possible that there is a reality, I mean, Scripture seems to point to this time and time again, that there is a reality that exists alongside of ours that we cannot perceive, but that can be granted and has been granted at moments in history. And that there will be a day where each of you, including myself, close our eyes to this reality and find ourselves seeing clearly the next. You will see Jesus in the flesh. Will you have some temporary bodily existence there? Scripture is unclear. Is it impossible? doesn't seem to be impossible. But there is a hope that we all have of a future day where that physical reality that we are so aware of now joins with that spiritual reality that you feel in moments when you spend time in God's Word, when you spend time in the company of other believers. You perceive this reality there. There will not be a device created that can tune into that. But you have all experienced it. Every one of you. If you believe that Christ is raised from the dead, the Holy Spirit showed you that. So you have experienced this reality though perhaps not as spectacularly as you would hope in sight. That day is coming. That day is coming. We'll end with that. Um, I've run very long tonight. I apologize, but we'll move to a different question next time, so that's good. Uh, let's close there.